Hello, my dear listener, and welcome to Is This It? I'm your host, Donna Grinberger, and I'm here to have meaningful conversations with talented and purpose-driven people to discover what mindset allowed them to overcome their greatest challenges and achieve success and share it with you so you can do the same. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider joining my exclusive Patreon community to support the show and unlock bonus content. How the hell does Steve Jobs command the respect of the world's best engineers to construct the iPhone, iPod, etc., and not be able to code? I want to figure out the right way to communicate to these technical people because I will need these people that have a completely different mindset, a completely different kind of brain to kind of follow my vision. It's very important to take ego out of learning. So one thing I used to remember at school, which I didn't carry with myself to uni, was um, it's okay to be like a slow reader or not to have your hand up all the time in the lectures. I needed at least six hours for every hour lecture. On today's episode, Christian Facey, CEO and founder of AudioMob. Christian, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. So I'll get straight into the nitty gritty. You are a founder of AudioMob, mm-hmm. and in three short years, you've built a business that recently has been closing a 14 million fund raise mm-hmm. and is valued at 110 million dollars. Insane. Thank you. <laughs> Tell us what is AudioMob, first of all. So, we invented uh, a concept now known as in game audio advertising. So what we can do is we can send an audio ad directly to a mobile game and let a user continue playing the game while listening to an audio ad rather than being blocked by a video ad. So an example is let's say you're racing the car in a mobile game. If you crash the car, usually you get a video ad that pops up. You wait for 30 seconds. It's very annoying. Most people hate video ads. So instead, what if an audio ad plays out of the car's radio Hmm. in return for a reward and the person can continue driving? It's a less annoying experience. So what you have is you've got the advertiser that can send a brand message to a user without blocking their experience. So it's better for the user. The advertiser gets a price efficient entry point into mobile gaming. Game developer gets a bit more money without damaging their user base. And of course the player is less annoyed. So we kind of achieved this trifecta over around three years of research. Uh, And yeah, that's what we do. Mm, Fascinating. So the first practical question that I have is what if the person playing doesn't have a sound on and how can you know whether they have a sound on well, that is the multi-million dollar question isn't it um, yeah so essentially getting the audio ad into a game is easy the really really hard bit is figuring out the audio analysis like i'll give you an example of the breakdown so you've got hundreds of different devices and they are across two different operating systems ios and android and then you've got other mechanisms like the iphone mute switch You've got the game. It could have sound effects on the game, which could be on or off. You could be listening to music in the background. So there's literally like billions and billions of audio states that all need to be analyzed to come up with two different variables. Is the phone muted or not? And what is the volume level? So myself and my co-founder and CTO, uh, Wilfred, we figured that out. We've got patents and you know, all that good stuff. And um, we built uh, uh, an advertising platform around, around this concept. So it's really figuring out the audio analysis. Mm. And what we discovered is, and this was back in 20, yeah, 20, 2020, as soon as we launched, because we, we figured this out before we you know, got the investment, is that 61% of people have the audio on the actual device, even though a lot of people mute the game. They listen to music or podcasts, or maybe they want to hear the phone ring. So when we found that out, we were like, this is clearly a multi-billion dollar you know, medium. 
and we were in a privileged position to kind of figure that out because I, I was a science partner at Facebook before starting AudioMob. And I also managed a lot of money at Google. So I was very, very kind of in the know in terms of the advertising ecosystem. So, yeah. Interesting. <laughs> okay. 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 Yeah. So I read that this whole idea mm. came from your love of producing music mm. and a passion for online gaming. Yes. So as you mentioned, you and your co-founder, Wilfred, you actually, before you founded Jukebox. Yeah. Which was a music streaming platform. Yeah, so basically I was making my own mobile games. Um, so I was a massive gamer and I was like, I probably should be doing something more constructive outside of work. So I started learning to make my own mobile games because I wanted to learn how to code software. And um, I also am a massive fan of like jazzy hip hop. So I've been producing that on and off since I was like 13 years old. I still do it every now and then, mostly around Christmas when I've got some time off. And um, I was like, okay, I need to figure out a way of combining my passions. So I started making... Um, games and streaming the music into the games mm -hmm. and the first version of audio mob is called jukebox and that is uh, like a music streaming system into games and the initial concept was like if we can stream music that people actually want to listen to they might play the game a bit longer mm -hmm. and then it it failed like massively but you know from the ashes because came audio mob. people can just listen to spotify or something and like all right yeah i mean like the theoretically well the hypothesis is actually true but we figured that out later um, but we didn't have the resources or the knowledge to prove that because, um, you know, we're, we're gaming monetization experts now. But back then, in terms of analyzing retention in accordance with like music streaming, that wasn't really done before. Mm -hmm. Outside of like games like Rocket League or Fever that, um, that analyze that kind of stuff. Interesting. Mm. The reason why I ask that is, you know, very often people talk about, okay, um, follow your passion. And then there's the other category, which is, you know, arguably majority of people that are no this is going to be my career path because this will bring me x amount of money and it's stable path yada yada so you from what i'm hearing you kind of combine those things at the same time you were like well i'm passionate about this i have a little bit of time let me not waste my time let me do something that i'm passionate about but with the kind of business perspective in mind so has that uh, always been the case so it it wasn't really a business perspective. It was like, I've always thought that if you work really, really, really hard at a goal you're trying to achieve, you'll end up in a good place anyway. So for instance, like for those that are, you know, in a career, for instance, for safety, rather than achieving their goals, you know, they may work really, really hard, but it's not their actual goal. So they might not, you know, get as far. Mm. For myself, it was like, okay, if I just figure out a way to combine passions and you know, really find the thing that can get you up out of bed at 4 a.m. or more, 4 a.m. in the morning where you're actually happy to get up and work on your thing, then you've got something that you'll probably productize or you'll make something of it, right? And that's, that's, that's the way that I always thought about it. It was like, I, I remember watching, um, watching this podcast. Um, you, you familiar with Gary Vee? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so I actually met him for the first time in person. I told him this story. I was, um, I was going through like a trial and error phase trying to figure out what I want to do. And I was, I was starting up all these businesses like drop shipping and events and FX trading. That was actually fun, but very stressful. And I was like, okay, I need to figure out like how to make something of a passion. I like music. I like gaming. And I, I remember watching this thing um, and Gary, Gary V mentioned that he's really, really, this was years ago. He's really, really tired of people that kind of complain about like not achieving their dreams, but then doing nothing to actually pursue the goal. Mm. And it's like, 
you know, for instance, if you don't have money and I made that, even I was working at Google and Facebook, I was broke throughout the whole process, constantly investing in myself, like constantly, right? When you say investing in yourself, can you specify? Yeah. So um, everything from courses, books, flying to countries and using up um, different countries and using my holiday to, you know, talk to VCs and go to hackathons and conferences. Like I, I was investing literally like pretty much 95% of my savings into investing in myself. Because the way I was thinking about it, I was like, okay, if I could teach myself to make software and I was a failing student and then I got good grades and I'm working at Google and I'm making software, like if I can teach myself to do that, I could probably teach myself to become an entrepreneur, but it costs money. And um, what Gary Vee was saying is like, you know, no matter what kind of stage you're at, you need to figure out a way of making money. And it doesn't have to be thousands of pounds. It could be tens of pounds or hundreds of pounds. Just make something so that you can invest in yourself. It doesn't matter how little it is. And, you know, you need to be willing to, like, work until your eyes bleed in order to achieve your dream. That's what you're saying. Now, that sounds a bit <laughs> drastic. <laughs> and I nearly took that literally because literally I was up at 4 a.m. in the morning. And I knew I had something when I was like, you know, you wake up early sometimes and you might go back to bed or slap the snooze button. Me, I was like, yes, I'm conscious of four hours before work. And then I just started making games. And that's when I knew. Then I dropped everything else. I was like, I don't know what this is going to turn into. But... I've never been this driven before at 4 a.m. in the morning to work on something. And then, I, and then I gained, you know, an extra four hours in a day, which helped me make games quicker. And then one thing led to another. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> um, definitely. I feel like everyone listening is probably feeling the same way. Uh, wow. How long was that for? How long was that 4 a.m. period for you? Like those extra four hours that you were cutting away? Mm, 10 months, maybe. Damn. Yeah, yeah, no, uh, about no, don't get me wrong. I don't recommend this. And, you know, I was trying to, ca- I, I was catching don't up Don't you really? Sleep. Are you sure? I was catching up with sleep. Um, um, I, so I was waking up 4 a.m. I wasn't getting four hours sleep. Like that, that, I do not recommend that. But um, yeah, I was, yeah, as soon as I was, I was conscious, I was like, I am going to start making games. I was taking like an extra laptop into work and like starting to practice like making games during my lunch hours and things like that. So yeah, I was just trying to use every waking second to figure out how to make a game. And then once I figured that out, you know, as a sales guy, like usually salespeople don't code or make software. It's like two very different sides of your brain. Yeah. yeah. Um, but then I would go to hackathons and they'd be like, oh, yeah, this guy can sell, he's charismatic, whatever. And then I'd pull out a game and go, oh, and I can make games as well. And like you garner the respect of engineers. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons that I knew I had to do that, like I wanted to finish a game before going to a hackathon is um, I started reading um, beforehand. Again, I, I feel like I've read so much stuff to figure out how to become an entrepreneur. I was reading up on the um, greatest figures that couldn't code, that commanded the respect of the world's best engineers. Hmm. So I started off in gaming. Um, so Haido Kojima, um, he made the Metal Gear Solid, um, Solid series, one of the most advanced like AI systems, um, like in-game AI systems that I've ever seen. And you know, if he couldn't code, but he's a creative director, and he really tried to, uh, you know, figure out how to get across his vision. Well, obviously, like coding um, and figuring out how to present that vision um, technically. He found a, a number of other ways to do that to command the respect of the world's best engineers. Steve Jobs is another example. How the hell does Steve Jobs <laughs> command the respect of the world's best engineers to construct the iPhone, iPod, etc., and not be able to code? Because the way that he communicates with engineers is very, very different to, to, to you know, a, a typical person that has like no technical knowledge. And I started trying to figure out, okay, I will eventually learn to code, 
But before I become, you know, a master at making games, I want to figure out the right way to communicate to these technical people because I will need these people that have a completely different like mindset, a completely different kind of brain to kind of follow my vision, whatever that looks like in the future. Mm. So yeah, I, I was working on this part of myself for, for a while and I've got a great team of engineers. <laughs> I was building audio up, so. So, I mean, that's, that's very, very curious. I had never thought about it this way. And so what mm. does it take? What do these people have in common? What is the language that they use to communicate their vision to engineers? I mean, this is the, the silliest example in the world, but it just popped into my mind. So since ever since I was a kid, I had the craziest dreams. And when I say crazy, I mean, every night I could just wake up. If, if I could transfer my dream into a movie screen, mm. wow, you bet. But yeah. how could I ever explain it? I was struggling to explain it even to my friends. You know, it's, it's how do you convey in words the feelings, emotions, sensations, colors, sense? And everything ah so tell me so based on my lived experience and the fact that I'm, I'm i'm kind of creative but i definitely have less of a creative mind like i think in for instance i think in numbers rather than colors and and and, and feelings and things like that like i'm, I'm i guess i've trained myself to think so that basically way. you're so, telling me that you see the matrix zero, 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 one no, and, now <laughs> and it's hard for you to communicate with engineers okay okay i see no no what, 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 what i'm saying is like the way that i i, I boiled it down to is engineers and I, and I remember seeing this at hackathons they hate stupid questions so like like i've, I've seen i remember at hackathons where i just um i'd be shadowing conversations just to get the dynamic taking notes yeah and you've got a weekend that someone's like oh yeah let's make a neural network and make an ai that can talk back to you and understand all this and they're like so you want me to do two two years of work in 24 hours that's great and then all respect is lost kind of thing so it's like you don't have to you know um be um you don't even need to know how to code but to understand the limitations of mm. technology and then communicate your vision very, very high level with those limitations in mind. I think that's going to be key to at least getting started, um, you know, in terms of talking to a potential engineer that, um, that, that you might want to, you know, get on your team. That's, that's at least the way I was thinking about it back then. And another thing I found out is in the early days, because you're trying to look for someone so different that might be completely outside your network, you think is impossible. And engineers are thinking the same thing. Mm. How do I find a business guy that can do all this? Uh, like, it's, it's, it's really funny, actually. Um, so yeah, yeah, that, that, that's, that's what I was thinking about it. Very, very, very interesting. Mm. I mean, from what you, what you just told me, it's you did your homework in terms of learning the opposite side. So if you wanted them to be on your team or you wanted to be in business with these people or if, even for them to work for you, you can expect or wait for them to understand you. Well, that's not really like a very leadership mm type of thinking right yeah. so you can wait for things to happen for you or you can go out and, and make and do them so mm. in your case either conscious or unconscious that understanding was there and so you made sure that you can make yourself understood and understand them and where they're coming from so you were doing your homework in order to be able to communicate with them mm, exactly fair enough um okay so before all of this before audio mob came into place Success wasn't always a part of the picture for you. So you mentioned that you failed at your A-levels. Mm, yeah. And that was also a very pivotal moment for you in terms of mindset shift that you 
had undergone. Mm. So first of all, what was happening in your life then? How was your life looking like that you failed? Let's just say as a typical teenager, I may have prioritized the wrong things, mm. like parties, going out, you know, all that typical stuff that one would prioritize, I guess. Um, but when I failed everything, I was 16, going on 17. And I remember I was like, hmm, so I'm not as smart as I think I am. Hmm. Interesting. And I was like, okay, I, I remember having like a flashboard where I was like, okay, I repeat my last year of um, sixth form college and then I don't go to uni and then I'm still, you know, uh, uh, living at home. And like, it was like a really, really kind of exaggerated view of my future. And I was like, okay, I need to be successful and there's no way in hell that that's going to happen. So it was literally like, I don't know, it was literally like getting like, hit by a brick or something it was like it really hit me hard and i was like okay i i need to get a grip completely yeah get a grip but completely <laughs> switch how i'm thinking about things and the first objective was i need to figure out how to get smarter like, like to hmm. become smarter to increase my aptitude and i geared it towards studies and then everything else and towards, what, um, towards my studies oh. and then everything else um and literally from the, the, the day after i was like okay how can i get smarter and i went through like a trial and error process how do i learn um, what are the things that I don't like versus things I do like? And um, then I took things from there. And, and it was a, about a four-year process before I really, really understood how my mind works. Okay, well, mm. excellent. This is my favorite topic. So <laughs> how do you learn faster? Um, and do you think what you learn can be applicable to everyone listening or is it super individual to you? Um, I, I, think, I think there could be definitely variations of what I do that could you know, help anyone listening. But really it's a a trial and error process. And I, I wish this book existed back then, but uh, there's a book called Growth Hacker uh, Marketing by Ryan Holiday. And um, basically using a trial and error approach to everything you do, every problem, et cetera, and then investing on where you get the, the positive data points is absolutely key. So even trialing something that you think isn't gonna work is actually really key hmm. um, because you, know, it, you may be surprised. So a couple of things I started figuring out was I'm a practical learner. Um, so I, I need Adults to- Adults generally are. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, I, and I knew I knew back then I was like, OK, if like, everything that I got the best grades in, it was like coursework, project works, like doing something practical. So I started figuring out, OK, how can I manufacture a, uh, a thing that I could physically do to aid my studies? This is about German levels. So I remember my worst um, my, my worst grades were in like economics. And I was like, OK, I need to actually outside of school analyze the macroeconomic environment. How do I do that? My dad started FX trading at the, at the time. Um, he switched from software engineering to FX trading. I was like, okay, FX trading looks really, really fun. It's all about making money. And, um, but I needed money. Instant gratification. Bam, 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 bam. Exactly. exactly. Instant grat gratification, which I do not recommend, by the way. But that's a whole other thing. Mm -hmm. So um, needed money. And I was working at Primark at the time, don't get paid much as a teenager at Primark. So I was like, okay, I, I need thousands of dollars. How do I make thousands of dollars? And I remember at school, people were complaining about these under 18 uh, socials that were called like um, clubbing nights, but you know, no alcohol, like an under 18 of them. They were complaining that, you know, there was fights breaking out and, and the, the venues were really like dodgy. And I was like, hmm. So if there's like 300 students and all paying 10, 20 pounds a pop, that, 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 could be, that could be quite an attractive little business. So I teamed up with my best friend um, and I was like, okay, what if we solved all of these problems and then just took the events business, <laughs> like, like a hostile takeover of the school kind of thing. So that's what we did. Um, 
we, we teamed up with the um, local council so they got to know us so we could host the events. We did um, UV um, tickets so the tickets couldn't be forged so, you know, troublesome people couldn't get in. We made the venue better and, and we made like a lot of money at that point in my life um, from hosting these events. Then I used the profits from that to do FX trading. And then I started analyzing the macroeconomic um, environment. Because you were migrates. playing with real money, with your money. Yeah. So yeah. you were very invested and very interested. Exactly. I was like, you know, I need to understand, like, you know, what happens if inflation, inflation increases or interest rates increase or decrease. Like, I, I, was, I was constantly on it every single day. And then my economics grades went up. Today's episode is brought to you by Momo Kombucha. If, like me, you like to be healthy and enjoy life at the same time, Momo could be a great addition to your diet. Tangy and sweet, fizzy and refreshing, it's also great for your gut. Momo is a natural, unfiltered kombucha, which is a fermented drink that's low in sugar and naturally contains probiotics and healthy organic acids. On top of that, it's full of antioxidants and acetic acid, which is great for boosting energy and lowering blood sugar levels. I like having it both on empty stomach and as a mocktail in the evening. Try it for yourself and let me know which flavor you liked most. Use the discount code ISTHISIT15 to get a 15% off of your first order. So that's when, I, that's when I realized, yeah, I'm definitely a practical learner and I need to manufacture something physical that I can do, but then direct it towards a, um, a vertical of learning. Okay. Yeah. That's a very, very valid advice. So what else, what else did you learn? A lot. I'm trying to think of like the best, <laughs> the best snippets. Um, I learned that it's very important to take ego out of learning. So one thing I used to remember at school, which I didn't carry with myself, uh, carry myself into uni, was um, it's okay to be like you know a slow reader or not to have your hand up all the time in the lectures or to just accept that. Like, like for me, for instance, like there are some people that are like you know noting down all the notes in the lecture in an hour and like and then they got the grades and it was all it was all good for them but for me it was like i needed at least six hours for every hour lecture um and that i had to review the notes and to really understand like the uh, all the concepts i was learning in these lectures um and then i was setting myself up like little projects outside of these lectures in order to really encompass the knowledge now does that mean that well doesn't mean I was a bit of a slow learner. Maybe, but I accepted that this is what I need to do in order to get straight A's. And it worked, but um, it was like really taking a look at myself, taking the ego out of things and realizing like what the distance is. Like for instance, like um, as I, so I retook all my A-levels um, when I was 17, 18 and all my grades were going up. And then, you know, suddenly my grandfather passes away during my A-level exams. It wasn't great. It wasn't, it wasn't great. Um, so, and I managed to get into Kingston, like, just through clearing. So I got enough grades to get into uni, but... What does that mean exactly? Oh, clearing. So um, that's when you, like, just missed the mark, and there's, like, any leftover spots that you have um, at the university. So I ended up going to Kingston, um, which is, you know, it's not a top university or anything, but it had a business school. And, um, again, what I mentioned in terms of taking the ego out of learning, I went into university thinking, okay, Goldman Sachs... Google, all of these top companies are not going to be looking for me at this university. Mm. They're going to be looking at the Warwick's, Oxford, Cambridge, mm. LSE, etc. So I need to work three to four times harder. They have one internship, I need four. If they get a 2-1, I need a first class degree, but not 70%, I need like 90%. So these were the things that I was thinking, I was really taking the ego out of things and thinking, okay, 
in the world, my worldview, this is where I am, and I need to go all the way over there. And, and that's how I approach life, not just my own learning. So taking the ego out of learning was probably the, the biggest thing I learned throughout that process. This is really, uh, this is really amazing. And why I say that is that I'm hearing what, what you do there is you just accept the reality for what it is. Mm. No more, no less. It exactly. is what it is. Mm. What are we going to do about it? Exactly. Which is very, very healthy. And I wish more people were adapting this sort of mindset because by definition, when frustration and anxiety and depression and anger, all of those things come when people deny the reality. Mm. They're stuck in thoughts, in their dreams, in their visions of past, of future, could have, that should have been, but it isn't. Mm. And so all of the energy that could be channeled into actually doing something about what is, is wasted on thinking and ruminating on what people think should be. Mm. So I see how you've come a far way to be where you are. You're just utilizing your energy in a right way. I, I, I hope I am. <laughs> I hope I am. Definitely. Yeah. That's, that's what results are showing. <laughs> so you mentioned, um, you mentioned a couple of things. So you mentioned the FX, you mentioned uh, the events business. Is there anything else you've done? And I want to know specifically each stint, each business, what did it teach you? Like that one like, main takeaway. Um, it taught me what I didn't like to do, I guess. Mm. So, um, the method is real. Yeah, yeah, it really is. Like the FX trading business, uh, what well, business like activity, I should say. Really liked it. But, um, you know, staying up until... 11, 11 uh, p.m. and then make sure you're waking up when the market's open and then you have to concentrate during the day like it, it's, it's a time sink and I wouldn't recommend ever ever trading part-time because it just doesn't work mm. and when I was able to trade like full-time definitely definitely works but again you know this is when I was at you know Google and I did a little bit of Facebook and again it's a time sink so I stopped that um <clears throat> tried drop shipping and again like drop shipping is it's, it's definitely a systematic way of making money, but often sometimes you need to take pot shots on certain products before they get too um, saturated in terms of what products you're going to sell. And it's... Um, the what shots, sorry? Uh, pot shots. So, so, sorry, like as in um, a gambling on like which, uh, yeah. which uh, products that you might want to, um, want, might want to sell. Like, well, it's not gambling, like it's analytical systems yeah. you can use. But um, it's, I, I wasn't really passionate about it because it's it's you're just selling a lot of commodities and trying to figure out like which commodity you can make the most margin on mm. um at least that was like the way i interpreted drop shipping so i started that and i started with bath bombs and then i moved on to a couple of other things but it's like i don't really care about the products that i'm selling uh and if it's just all about making money i preferred fx trading which i already stopped so i stopped that mm. um i looked into so just to interject and add on uh, <clears throat> drop shipping because it seems to be such a popular option that people consider when when doing side hustles as one of the first ones mm. and i even have friends that have come to me like hey yeah let's totally do a side hustle let's do drop shipping <laughs> <laughs> it's like one of the first things that i always say <laughs> and it's what you say it's either you have the knowledge of what is performing best and if you do then what says that you will outperform the existing leaders that are selling that because surely they'll have invested some sort of marketing um budget already to be the first ones so did you 
kind of cracked the code a little bit? Is there like a secret to dropshipping? Oh, I wouldn't say I cracked the code. Um, it was, you know, it's, it, I, I, yeah, I definitely didn't crack the code um, or not enough that I was willing to, you know, invest. I started seeing like, a, I wouldn't even say it was success, but a tiny bit of traction. Mm. But again, it's like, I, I do not care about bath bombs. And I'm just like, I wasn't waking up in the morning to, to, to figure out how to sell a bath bomb, yeah. you know? And I get me wrong, I'm not, you know, throwing shade on bath bomb businesses. It just wasn't for me. Of course. Um, so it, was, it wasn't more, it was more a case of, was I willing to work? Give away your time yeah. for purely money if there are other ways to make money. And then surely yeah. you thought, okay, well, if I have to work every day doing whatever to make money, I guess it's smarter to just invest longer time doing something that I believe in that most probably long-term will pay much higher dividends, like starting my own business. Yeah, exactly. Sorry, I interrupted you. You were telling me about other businesses. No, yeah, yeah. So, so uh, there, was, there was drop shipping, um, starting um, a um, affiliate marketing uh, website as well. Okay. Again, I found that very boring because I was thinking, hmm, okay, I'm pretty knowledgeable around digital marketing and whatnot, but again, boring. It was like using my skills for something that could just make money, but I found it boring. Um, streaming platforms to help people interview to get into top corporates because again I got into Google and kept getting asked questions and it was like hmm okay could I make money from this I didn't mind making the content but in terms of productizing that kind of um, that, that kind of content I didn't actually enjoy the process of making that into a business and I've got a mentorship now where I do it all for free which I find quite fulfilling but in terms of um, yeah making the educational content and then productizing it in the form of like you know how to progress in interviews or whatnot, mm. um, I didn't enjoy turning it into business, which I was surprised with because I liked making the content. Um, so there was that. Um, there, was, there, was, there was loads of other ones, just lots of other little ones. Yeah, I'm hearing, I'm <laughs> hearing so, but okay. yeah, I, I went through about nine until I got to uh, the whole game development piece. And that was purely concentrating on the passion and not how to make money. Okay. And I didn't, I didn't believe that at the, time, but at the time, but I was like, okay, let me just concentrate on what I like rather than trying to make this a profitable thing and then we'll see what happens. Well, mm. this, is, this is another one of my questions that I was going to ask. Passion or business? We kind of touched upon it already, but mm. from your story, at least, it seems that it's definitely following your passion in a systematic, long-term vision way yeah. that you make it into something. Yeah. So. Yeah, the way, so the way, the way I think about this is, um, and I'm going to try and keep this fairly short-ish. Um, loved music, loved gaming, combined it, and then I, I had this thing where investors would be willing to hear me out, but I couldn't figure out the business yet. So if you concentrate on the passion, that's the thing that will keep you going until you figure out a business around that, pas around that passion project, or you adapt the projects to fit some kind of business model. So, so that, that's what ended up happening. Um, and, I, and I really, really like, I still love music to this day. Um, but what happened was I needed to pivot the um, uh, jukebox, the music streaming system into an ad streaming system because stream, mm. like streaming music into a, like a slot in a game, it's all audio at the end of the day. So we could easily stream um, an, an audio ad instead. Uh, and that's the pivot that we made. Now, again, am I passionate about ads? No, I'm passionate about business and solving problems. And the fact that 100% of my time is going towards figuring out how to make this, this business bigger, how to solve all these problems. So I'm very, very passionate about, I guess you could say, the process of business. Mm. And um, what actually happened was we ended up pivoting back to the music industry once Audio Mob took off. So uh, we, had, we started working up. 
So we started working with um, the music industry first because the music industry tends to uh, be faster moving, test out innovations and whatnot. And I'm not sure if you're familiar with Grand Theft Auto yes. game. Yes, yes. Yeah. So uh, there's a radio in the game and that's like the hot, it's still to this day one of the hottest music properties to get your music in because the tracks blow up, right? And we were like, okay, the music industry is probably going to test this out. If we make this mechanism work in a mobile game, like you're driving a car or you're doing a puzzle or something and then you stream music into it, that's probably going to be attractive for labels. So um, we, in, in 2020, um, we did a first campaign with Joel Corey and M&EK that was under Warner. Then we did something with Justin Bieber's team. Then we basically blew up and covered all the labels. We closed deals with all of them in like the first four months of 2021. Uh, and yeah, we came full circle and I yeah, started working with all these different um, artists' teams and it was, it was insane. Dream come true. Yeah, yeah, no, really it was. It was like, you know, one of my favorite rappers is Nas and he's like quote, making quotes in, in articles saying, you know, audio mob is dope. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. Wow. Um, so it, it kind of came full circle. Um, but yeah, I, I guess like when you concentrate on your passions, turn it into a business, even if the business model around your passion shifts, there will probably be a route back to including your passion, your direct passion in that business in some way. Yeah, because there's so many iterations along the way mm. of you creating your business, like yeah. countless ones. And what I'm hearing also not to miss is at some point it became very clear that you need to solve other people's problems. Mm. That's the essence of a business. And so with that in mind, then you shifted from streaming music to streaming ads because you're solving their problems. Exactly, yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about marketing. We've, we've touched upon it a couple of times. So, and it's not only marketing, but it's role in your current business and in the evolution of it. So um, you worked as a strategist at Google, mm -hmm. managing up to a hundred million in advertising spend. I read mm -hmm. at Facebook, you were a marketing science partner and you were using cutting edge solutions to measure the true value of advertising. Yeah. Okay. So what core learnings about marketing did you gain during your work in Google and Meta that you think could be useful for any entrepreneurs listening? Hmm. So one of the cool things that I learned, and don't get me wrong, I left in 2019. So a lot of my knowledge is probably out of date, but I learned about core frameworks so that I can figure out what I need to look at in order to stay updated. So I'll give you an example. Um, I learned about uh, a full funnel marketing strategy. So everything from the branding advertising that is at the top of the funnel, third-party measurement solution. So for instance, if you're uh, going to buy some ads on YouTube, you want to make sure that a third-party measurement provider such as um, a, a provider called IAS or Oracle Moat also are integrated into your system. Show notes, show notes, you'll send them to me, okay. Absolutely, no, no. So, so it's like, if you're sending ads into YouTube, for instance, you want a third party to verify that those ads have actually been served mm -hmm. rather than the platform. It's like not marking your own homework kind of thing. So, so I learned a lot about that. I learned a lot about um, concepts around remarketing and how, uh, again, there's so many different um, concepts here. But if you uh, capitalize on spending more money on people that have been to your website or have seen your ad already, they are more likely going to convert if they show um, and the right, the right buying signals. I learned about um, attribution. 
So that's a really, really important concept because you've got lots and lots of different devices, right? Someone won't just go on their phone and see like, I don't know, a 400 pound handbag or something and buy it. They will research buying a handbag across different devices. So there's like a really, really uh, complex issue where let's say, you know, there's lots of devices around here. You've got your tablet, you've got your laptop, you've got different phones and you might jump between all of those. It's very hard for an advertiser to see if it's you on their website across different devices. So there's this concept called attribution, right? So it's assigning a dollar value to each point in the chain. So you might start off viewing, um, I don't know, a purchase of a pair of shoes on the phone, then you might go onto Instagram, then you might watch TV and you might get ads across the whole um, chain, the same kind of ad promoting that, that shoe, right? And then the point where you decide to purchase might be on, a, on your laptop, You've researched it over a couple of months and you're like, okay, I'm going to buy this pair of shoes. And then you go on the laptop, fill in the information that you buy the pair of shoes. And that's the last point. Mm. And it's figuring out what points you need to invest in. How much should you invest in Instagram for phone users? How much should you invest in TV? How much should you invest in your desktop um, website traffic? So the whole concept of attribution is something that's really, really important because the whole industry optimizes towards the last point which is that laptop purchase. When you're on your laptop and you decide to make a purchase, but that wouldn't make sense if the first point that you saw the ad was like 90 days ago on your phone on a different platform. Mm. So the whole concept behind attribution is again, assigning a dollar value to each point in like a purchase funnel, Mm -hmm. because if you optimize towards the end of the funnel, then your marketing is not gonna be effective at all. So it's all these concepts that I learned um, and the frameworks that I've learned to like think like this that have informed how we have built AudioMob because we are an end-to-end solution. So from the third-party measurement to the attribution tracking and all that good stuff, we have everything that a world-class marketing platform would have. Now, these are like a couple of things that I've learned. Um, and um, I would say for someone starting out in, in marketing, it's not definitely not where I would start, but these are some of the key things that I learned uh, whilst working at both companies. Fascinating. Yeah, I would have not known any of that. <laughs> Bit <laughs> so, of a rabbit hole there. Uh, yeah, no, yeah. it's definitely, but um, very, very useful. And I guess for anyone listening that's starting a startup, they're starting their own business, hmm. depending on what the business is, depending on who they are, I've seen sometimes people neglect marketing as a whole. Hmm. And so hearing that there's this massive machine behind every single movement of the client on the other side is a little bit scary, (laughs) but also just puts things into perspective. Mm. So what unique marketing strategies have you implemented for your business that you think have been pivotal to your success, AudioMob's success? So I mentioned it once already, read Growth Hacker Marketing by Ryan Holiday. Um, the concepts that I learned there have inferred, it helped us pivot out of the uh, pandemic. It, it's an amazing book. And um, I guess our PR strategies is, uh, is, is definitely something that, that has changed the trajectory of, of AudioMob and especially how it's perceived as well. Like you can Google us and we've got, you know, awards and press and all that kind of stuff. And it's around building um, an influential SEO footprint around your company and yourselves personally. So there's another book that um, I read called um, Key Personal Influence by Daniel Priestley. And basic concept is that if you really want to be influential, your SEO footprint has got to be a, a, a representative of how good you are. Because you've, you've sometimes got all these amazing people that do all these amazing things. And they're like known as 
you know, Bob, amazing salesperson at X company. Well, no, it should be Bob, amazing sales influencer in industry vertical. And that's yeah. what they should be known for. And that's something I took very, very seriously because, again, in Growth Hacking, I read that you've got to test out every avenue you could possibly think of. And a lot of people negate marketing and PR, whether it's an investment thing, you don't have to spend a lot of money, but it's a, it's a time sink and it's a very long-term commitment. But we decided we're going to test everything and see if it works, and the PR has certainly worked for us. So it's testing everything from, um, I'll give you an example. Um, let's say oh, link, LinkedIn, right? A lot of people on LinkedIn are C-levels, VPs, directors, very, very good source of uh, influencing an industry. But to do that, you've got to make a lot of connections. So rather than me saying, hey, I'm Christian, I've just launched AudioMob, would be great to connect, and manually doing that for two hours a day, connecting to, at the time, it was like 300 people a day. There's no way I'm doing that. I've actually got a business to build. However, that could be automated. So is there a way that we could, you could use, I don't know, either someone on Fiverr or use a, a bot of some kind where it's, where it's literally, hey, would love to connect. And uh, well, my name's Christian, would love to connect, just started AudioMob. Um, we do X, Y, and Z. And then just let that bot connect to everyone in the um, FMCG space or the QSR space or the automotive space. So I started testing that out because a lot of people, they hate bots, right? Because it's just these bloody scripts where it's like, hey, would be great to talk. Uh, and then you're like, connect with them. And then they send you just like pages and pages yeah. of it's, it's, it's horrible. So I was like, okay, I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to connect with them. Yeah. And I swear, if everyone starts doing this, I, I probably should have charged for this, but it's fine. Um, <laughs> what you do, what you do is you connect with them and you do not sell them anything. You, you don't even talk to them again unless they want to talk to you. You don't do that. And then what you, what you do is you start building up your, connect, your connections. And then the more connections you have, the more likely you are to be accepted because someone will want to connect with you if you've got a larger footprint. And then what you do is you start posting content about what you're doing. And that is how you influence the person. So you don't sell to them directly in the, in the chat. You start posting stuff on LinkedIn. And then the more that people like it, the more that, that you will constantly be in their minds. And now when I send out a LinkedIn post, most of the people that see it are thousands and thousands of people um, within the companies that I want to become my clients. So this is something that I've done over the last three years. Um, and I literally manufactured myself into a micro-influencer in the tech space. So you know, like 20,000, you know, or 23,000 um, connections and lots of them are VPs and investors and game developers. So, so I built all this up. And now it gets to the point where I'll make a post and then people will like that content and share it over like a two-week period. Mm. And people like know about me before I've met them saying, oh yeah, you're posting all the time on LinkedIn. And it's like, no, actually, people are liking my stuff over a long period of time and then you're getting hit up in your feed, so it looks like I'm posting more. So there's all these like little little hacks that I've learned, and it's now gotten to the point where I'll post something on um, on my LinkedIn page, and we did a split test compared to um, um, a an advertise um, an ad tech kind of marketing publication, and my LinkedIn post would generate more traffic than you know reaching out to certain journalists and getting them to post on their um, their websites. So. Yeah, I'd say like if you're uh, definitely doing like a, a B2B um, kind of business, like LinkedIn, you have to grow your footprint on that, like without question. Very uh, school of marketing of you. <laughs> this, this sort of plan is like, hmm, I'm going to 
I'm gonna crumble, 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 crumble <laughs> for a very long time, and then they will come to me. Yeah. Good. 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 Um, okay. So you mentioned in one of your interviews that you've studied all of these methods to increase your aptitude, to increase your learning capacity, mm -hmm. to overcome your mental barriers that are hindering you from achieving more success. We've mentioned quite a few. Is there anything else that you haven't mentioned that has been very crucial? And what do you think were your mental barriers that you had to overcome? Mm. I'd say the, I think the key, the key one I think I've already mentioned, which is the, the ego piece, mm. is just around it's, and again, it, uh, this, is, this is how I think about things. So my main objective was I have to figure out how to become smarter. That was just what went through my mind like every, every day like during university. Like how do I become better? And it's not so much a thing as, oh, I'm not good enough and woe is me. That's not what I'm saying the thought process here is. It's how do I become better so, you know, you can be the best. And again, like people really underestimate the difficulty sometimes of taking your ego out of the equation because everyone likes to think that, you know, they're smart or they're knowledgeable or, um, you know, they're, they're really good at certain things. And I just think to myself, well, I could, it's easy to tell myself because I knew at the time, it's like, I am not good at X, Y, and Z, mm. and that is okay. It's okay to... It's actually a power to acknowledge that because mm. then, again, you have what you have and then you can move on. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I mean, it's almost like... The way, the way I think about it is um, for people that don't think in this way when they are trying to learn something, it, in, it, it influences like how you move and navigate in the world. It's almost like... You know, if you've got a, a gap that you need to jump across, right? If you don't remove the ego, it's almost like trying to do that blindfolded. You have no idea how far that gap is to where you want to be. And the reason I mentioned that it changes the way that you navigate the world is things like people not, here's a simple one. So people that don't ask questions in the, in the classroom because they don't want to seem stupid. The smartest people in the room always ask the most questions because they want to learn more. And I figured that out at university. I was like, why the hell is no one asking questions? I want to figure out how to get all these grades. So I'd ask loads of questions in class. I would then go afterwards. I'd then set up private sessions with the lecturer and ask more questions after that. Um, and again, it's like, it's a lack of ego thing. I don't care if I look stupid. I don't care if everyone's getting annoyed. Oh, Christian's asking another question again. I don't care because I'm going to be learn quicker than everyone else. And it worked. And um, I, what I tend to do now is rather than ask um, a lot of questions, because this is in the classroom, what I will try and do is I will always try and listen for as long as possible, and then kind of ask the most efficient questions. Because, you know, university is, uh, I always think of it as like a time bubble. But when I'm, for instance, negotiating uh, a multi-million dollar deal or something, no, I can't ask questions because I've got an hour, <laughs> an hour period. So you learn to be a bit more efficient. Um, but yeah, again, removing the ego out of things and not being afraid of you know, being perceived a certain way, um, that is critical to, to self-development, I think. Yeah, and that goes back to whether, whether you're doing things for others or are you doing them for yourself? Are you here to try and appear and look smart or are you here to actually do something and learn something? So what you just said, how do you distill your questions to the most important essence in these time-constricted environments? So... It depends on the nature of the conversation. And this is a much longer conversation, but um, let's say in a deal negotiation, 
So sometimes, well, often as a startup, you're going to be negotiating from a position of absolutely no leverage. Like it could be you against a, a company that's worth, logically speaking, nothing because you just started negotiating with a billion dollar company, right? Or a company worth a couple hundred million dollars. And a couple of things that you'll need to figure out is, okay, you have gotten into the room with this specific company because they maybe, maybe will adopt your solution because you have some value. And the reason that they are going to try and uh, extract the most value, make it one-sided, is because they have the leverage and they perceive you as someone that doesn't have leverage. But remember, you've got the value. So some of the questions that you need to ask to find out as, as quickly as possible is, what are the ceilings of the deal? So an example would be, if some, so, so there's, a, there's a technical partner that we're going to, uh, that, that we integrated with, and they offered us, um, what was the initial offer? This was years ago now. It cost like $10,000 a month in order to adopt their solution. And we were like, okay, we just raised some money. This is very, very, very expensive. Why is it $10,000 a month? So we asked them, why is it $10,000 a month? And it's because of usage, um, usage fees, right? And we're like, oh, that's interesting. So what, is the, what, what does that $10,000 a month actually look like in terms of usage? And what's the maximum possible usage anyone else could possibly do within their first year with a startup like us? And they gave us some astronomical figure. And we're like, oh, okay. So it doesn't actually have to be $10,000 a month because we are X size and we're pretty much only going to use X amount, which equates to at least half of that. But then they were like, oh, well, you know, you're a small company, you just started out and we've got all these clients, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, okay, okay. So I completely accept that this is a risk that you don't want us to use too much. However, as you are a startup, as you're a big company and you need to, you know, get as much money in your bottom line as possible, yada, yada, yada. How about we do a ramp up, right? So rather than it being 10,000 a month, why did we start off on 5,000 a month for the first six months and then ramp up to 10,000 a month? We, we share our usage with you, et cetera. So on that part of the, the commercials, I was trying to think of, okay, what's the ceiling? What's the risk that they, are, um, that they are scared of? And then like finding a middle ground. And again, it's the whole thing that I mentioned about the distance. You can't go into a negotiation and kind of say, I want this or I want this because it's good for my business and it might be good for yours unless you know what the ceiling is. Because mm. the ceiling represents like what their risk tolerance is. And then you try and negotiate to the middle. So, so this, is, this is how you can do things when you negotiate without leverage because when you find out the risk, uh, to the other side of the table, it's much, much, much easier to justify a, uh, a counter, like a counter negotiation, which will actually seem reasonable rather than you taking pot shots in the dark. So again, it's this, I could probably do like a whole other hour on like negotiations, but I, I learned, <laughs> but I, um, I, I learned, I learned this from um, uh, a, a guy who used to uh, run deals for Google. And I actually remember um, when we went in for Google for startups, because we got investment from them as well, um, randomly started talking to him. And I was like, oh my gosh, he used to run strategic deals for Google. And he would tell me these very specific points as to like how you can negotiate uh, for leverage. And this was like an hour conversation back in 2020, uh, in Q1 before. Yeah. And it was invaluable. And I still got those notes. Like I'm working on a massive deal now, which I cannot talk about. But I go back to those notes and I try and figure out what are the negotiation structures? Mm. And then I try and lift it into my current deals now. Have you read uh, Chris Voss's book? No, I haven't. No. I've, been, I've, been, I've been told I was to ready to bet. Uh, I, know I, need, I, I know I need to. I yeah, need it's, to. It's, you're going to like it for sure. For sure. Yeah. This is right up your alley. Uh, <laughs> but 
what I'm hearing, and by the way, thank you so much for sharing this. This is going to be surely invaluable for people listening as well. What I'm hearing is once again, the ability, the willingness and the skill to really listen to the other party, understand what their needs are, Mm. and then make an equation, make a solution that kind of works for both. Yes, that, that, that is definitely a, uh, there's, there's many different kind of methods for this, but yeah, like it's always trying to figure out what the middle ground is, but you need to know what the ceiling is so you can find the middle. Mm-hmm. That's, the, that's the key concept. Yeah. Awesome. So I'm going to go straight into the, to the point, which is the reason why this podcast was even created, which is purpose. So why do you do what you do? I like doing what I do two reasons. First one is I like the fact that I can dedicate 100% of my time to growing something that matters to me. And I, I figured out that when I was working in corporate that I was optimizing towards a promotion, or as at least I was being forced to, rather than self-development. Mm. And uh, it's, it's a very, very distinct difference. And it happens to most people in every single company, which is why a lot of people move around. So that there's that ceiling to uh, self-development. And I guess you could say being a founder, especially one uh, in a profitable company or massively VC-backed company, it's almost like the biggest self-development training course you could ever, ever, ever get. Because you have to figure out constantly how to deploy capital. That's all that it is. It's raise your first million dollars. How can you become a founder that can deploy that capital into creating finance division and a people division, operations, gaming partnerships, advertising sales? How can you do all of that developing your PR strategy? Like how can you do that to deploy the next million to cause a little bit of growth and then the next million? And then when we raise our series A, which was $14 million, that's a, and we 10x our valuation. I better be 10 times as good or figure out how to become 10 times as good. And then you figure out, okay, who are the advisors I need to bring in? Who, who are the kind of people I need to hire? How do I manage and train and hire a team of directors when before I was managing a team of junior salespeople? So it's literally, it's literally like the, the, the biggest self-development course you could ever possibly ask for when you raise money and you, you become a founder. And I absolutely love it. That, 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 that's, that's the first reason um, that I love doing what I do. And then the second reason, not to get too you know, sentimental or uh, mushy or anything, but um, I really find it fulfilling that the self-development that I've done over the last 10 years, it's, it's working well somewhat to some degree because uh, I've been able to you know, raise and start a company and things like that. And I really like the fact that I can now give advice knowing that if it works for me, then some of what I've done for myself is going to uh, definitely benefit someone else. But I can say that without it being an assumption, it's a certainty, because I developed myself doing X, Y, and Z, and it has led to X, Y, and Z. And I've been very direct in terms of the advice that I've given people, whether it's getting jobs at Google or raising money or, or whatever it is, and it's, it's, it's really worked. I mean, we have a mentorship scheme um, um, as part of AudioMob that you can find on the website. And I really like the fact that, hmm, the advice has worked for me and I'm passing it on and it's working for other people. So I really, really do, do, do like that, uh, that part of uh, my job as well. Amazing. Yeah. Um, okay, so it's 
it's tackling the giving back and it's tackling the growth mm. issues, which are fundamental issues that need to be tackled in order for you to be happy, at least according to my own observations in life. Mm. So I want to go back to what you just said, because there's a few points that I'm curious about. So I like that you said that you need to understand and you need to be able to deploy the money because every time I hear about it, it's always, how do I raise? How do I raise? How do I get the money? How do I get the money? Nobody ever talks about how do I deploy the money? How can I be good enough to deploy the money? So that's, that was an interesting point for me. And so how do you become exponentially 10 times better with the 10 times raise that you've achieved in a short amount of time? I'm going to mention the ego thing again, because it's really important. Because um, you, you just got to, you just got to be, okay, so one method that I learned, and I only really, I only really practiced this after I raised, because, you know, you put everything into trying to raise the money, and then you're deploying the capital, and you've got all of these different ideas that you work really hard on, like you sacrifice everything on, whether it's a strategy to raise or an investment deck or a big project or whatever it is. And then you then these very skilled advisors or investors will sometimes come in. Sometimes it'll be great. Sometimes they'll rip apart your deck and be like, okay, you need to work on X, Y, and Z after you spent two weeks on it. And you get this little voice in your head, or I get a voice in my head, which is like, no, no, he or she must be wrong. Like what I did was right. And you have to silence that voice, like constantly silence the voice that opposes a uh, uh any form of uh, criticism and once you silence that voice then you can actually reflect on what's be- what you're being told and then you can learn from it and i really think that one of my um superpowers if you will is that i'm really able to take on board new information and then use that information very quickly to further a goal whether it's that negotiation stuff that i mentioned or how to raise money or whatever it is i, I know i'm able to do that very very quickly how how? Yeah. No one's actually ever asked me that. Oh, um, that's so important. I know exactly what you're talking about. And that's yeah. been on my mind a lot. There are two things. Mm. Retention mm-hmm. of information, lessons you learn, and then integration. Mm. Please. Okay. So the retention piece is because I figure out a way of immediately putting it into action. So um, I just naturally retain knowledge when I'm, as I mentioned, I'm physically doing something. Um, in terms of the execution, because no one's really asked me this, like, how do I actually do it? Um, okay, so I'm just going through my thought process. Um, last time I, I was doing this recently, I have a very binary approach when it comes to advice that I am willing to take on board. Mm. So the way I think about it is if I am seeking advice or if the, per- if, even if I wasn't, if someone's just giving helpful advice. I immediately, I I think I almost do this subconsciously now. I'm like, okay, this person has X amount of experience. I'm either going to fully trust what they are telling me to the letter or I'm not. There's no like in between where, ah, yeah, I'll like take their advice and I'll, no, it's like, it's very, very binary. So if someone's like, okay, uh, let's take one of my investors, absolutely amazing. um, And one of our uh, investors was like, in order for you to raise the Series A, you really should adopt this investment strategy, which is um, basically taking a very small group of 10 investors and then setting up a pipeline of all your other investors. And rather than what I initially done, which is I had a very methodical way of a shotgun approach where I would have all of these different investors, I do these marketing campaigns, I was doing all this, I really planned it. And then um, my um, investor Gina was like, nope, you really should do it in this specific way. 
the little voice came in. Oh, I put all this work into this strategy. Silence the voice. And I'm like, Gina's an amazing investor. One of our first largest shareholder has all this amazing experience. I'm just going to follow this to the letter because she clearly knows what she's talking about. Executed that. And then, yeah, we raised the 14 million in, you know, uh, a couple of, a couple of months. So it's, it's having that absolute trust of the advice that you are willing to take on board and then executing it to the letter. Um, I, I think that's the best way I can explain it. Very, 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 very useful. And I guess just the step before that is also that decision making. Mm. You make a decision. Yeah. Yes, I'm going to trust this person or not. Mm. That's a very important part and not to be overlooked because one of the number one things that you need to have as, a, as in any sort of leadership position is the good decision making. And a lot of people don't have that. True, true. And I guess a caveat for the, the listeners here, I'm not saying to I trust every single person, like making sure that this, if you're going to take this binary approach, um, you need to make sure that you have a very good sense of if that person is actually knowledgeable in the thing that they're giving advice on. Because the amount of horror stories I've heard of where um, like in other companies, other investors are like, oh yeah, you should do X, Y, and Z. And then the company's like bloody collapsed because of that advice. Like you've got to be very, very, very careful because this will work if you have a uh, good judgment of um, the people you're taking advice from. Mm. Hence the decision making. Yes. M- make, make, make a decision fast, but make it very thoroughly. Exactly. With the awareness of the repercussions that. Yeah. Making no pressure, guys. <laughs> making the wrong choice could, could have. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Mm. Well, I guess this goes down to also, I guess, vetting at some level people that you have in your circle in the first place. And just being conscious about who, who they are and why they're in your circle? Yes. The whole, you know, network is your net worth kind of thing. Um, that gets very, very real, uh, um, especially like the further, um, the further that you go and the bigger your company gets in terms of in a professional sense. Um, because if what, what, what you'll find is that if you have a very, very good network of people, uh, and this is another thing that I could talk about for ages, but um, I call it the conduit approach, hmm. right? where you have a very small network of very trusted, great individuals that all also have amazing networks. And what you find is, what I found is that my network could exponentially increase as long as I was able to articulate what my you know, dreams and my ideas were when I was trying to start Audio Mob um, and you know, the idea itself. You can get into any room with a good idea. And what I found is that rather than trying to network and meet 200 people a month, I would capitalize on those relationships where, you know, there was a mutual, there's definitely a mutual exchange of value in terms of, you know, I want access to this person's network. They're a great person. Um, and when the times come, if I raise, uh, raise money, they will definitely have like room for, for an investment uh, to make a little ticket, that kind of thing. And yeah, what I'll find is that my network massively increased, not because I was meeting 200 people, but I met like five good people mm. that can give me access to like hundreds of advisors. And that was absolutely critical because when we first started out, I was like, okay, I've got an advisement, uh, advisor for people, for raising money, for how to deal with investors. Cause you know, I had no experience hosting a board meeting, right? So um, networking through this, the, these kind of conduits is, is super, super important. You don't need to meet 200 people a month you just need to meet a couple of really really good ones and they will absolutely help you in the, in their journey and for anyone that's like well you know why would someone you know op- open up the network or, or whatever it's there's all kinds of people that are uh, you know 
really, really successful, many, many um, years ahead of where you might be at your point in your journey, and they're constantly trying to give back. Mm. And again, the, these are the kinds of people that you want in your, uh, in your corner. Mm. How do you find them? Amazing. Like, <laughs> and, and it's great because, you know, back a couple of years ago when I was starting out, I was seeking advisors and, and, and audience with investors and things like that. And now it's completely flipped where uh, I just get people coming to me all the time. And it's, it's, mm. it's great. Yeah. And then that's another thing. Like, if you're going for um, investment, what you'll find is that for the, for the first million dollars you raise will be the hardest million without question. Um, and you will be, you know, sending hundreds of emails. You'll be going out to, you know, all these different events, trying to meet these investors. Um, eventually it will flip though, where they will just constantly come to you. Um, so that, that's something you also need to- be Time in on. the game. Yes, exactly. Okay. Yeah. Well, you've shared a wealth of knowledge uh, so far. Thank you so much already. I'm, I'm, I'll be taking notes. I'll be <laughs> reviewing this episode every now and then. Uh, I, I definitely agree on the, on the network. And it's about the quality of people mm. rather than the quantity of them. I've had this year uh, myself an experience where I attended one event which was the right event. It was the right event with the right people, my type of people, mm. my type of tribe. And from there, it was just a domino effect, mm. like a spider web, like a delta of rivers, basically. That's just like everything expanded from there. Uh, so yeah, definitely a few, but good is what's necessary. Mm. So as we're nearing to the end of this fantastic episode, has there ever been a question that you thought people should have asked you, but never did? Hmm. No one's ever asked me that question before either. <laughs> hmm. Or something that hasn't been asked you that you think that actually could be good value if you shared it. How do you prepare for the best case scenarios? <clears throat> yeah, so um, a lot of people always asking about, you know, how to prepare for the worst case, right? Because every six months there is a some kind of macroeconomic event that shifts the world, right? And it's very hard to navigate right now. But outside of preparing for the worst, how do you prepare for the best? So <clears throat> there's certain things like, okay, let's say um, recent banking collapse, right? Um, and, you know, Silicon Valley Bank and all that stuff that was going on. Preparing for the worst, you kind of diversify your, um, um, where you store your money. Rather than in one bank, you might have like 10 different banks or something, right? or you access a bank that has unlimited liability or whatever it is. Preparing for the worst is a very kind of systematic thing. But then what happens when you've got a client that wants to, for instance, scale you across the whole business and your team of 10 and their, their business has got like 10,000 people? Like, how do you prepare for that? Or how do you prepare for the fact that you're raising a million, but then you've got an investor that wants to give you 20? Like, <laughs> these are the kinds of things that you always need to think about. And We've, we've had some, some of those cases where I remember um, we initially wanted to raise 300K and then it increased to 500 and then suddenly it was 750. And that ramp up happened in the space of two weeks. And we're like, wait, what? Okay, we've got to figure out how to spend 750K. Oh, what's going on? Like, Again, how to deploy. <clears throat> yeah. And um, for, I guess, to prepare for the worst case and give all these different examples, but I guess the best answer to this question is, you need to make sure whether it's a mentor or an advisor, have that go-to person that can help you enter the first kind of room that you've never been in before. So I have um, people that I'll go to for the first kind of investment negotiation that I've had. 
um, one of my mentors, um, Suzanne Parks, this was the first time I raised, I was like, I have never raised money. And this is a very sophisticated investor that can say all this stuff and I don't know what it means. Like, how can I kind of frame that conversation? Or the first time, friends, and I can't mention what kind of company, let's say one of the largest music companies tried to buy us in 2021. And how do you navigate that conversation? Very, very different. So I always have these like go-to people that I could immediately call. Um, and it's usually like, it'll be, this is urgent. I have never done this before. It's a big opportunity. And then they'll, any time in a 24-hour cycle, they will pick up the phone. So yeah, that's how I prepare, prepare for best case scenarios in case they happen. Mm, very interesting. I'm so glad I asked that question. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. No problem. So in the end of every interview, I like to ask, what is your recipe for happiness? Sorry, what's my? Recipe for happiness. Recipe for happiness. Working on something that has true meaning to you, but doing that in a way where you also have balance. And I'm not talking about like, you know, obviously with entrepreneurs, you've got to uh, work all hours of the day uh, to really like make your thing take off. But also remember that work isn't actually everything. Like, you know, having some personal time, investing in your actual personal relationships, you know, friends and family and whatnot. Time's the only thing that you don't get back. And there's a lot of sacrifices that you need to make as you're starting something out. But, um, and, and sometimes a lot of entrepreneurs, if they're passionate about what they're doing, they'll happily do that. But, you know, time creeps up on you. It really, really does. So always make sure that, you know, working on something that you're really passionate about, but do not forget to invest in your personal relationships. Because very, very easy to, to, to forget about that part if you're uh, scaling a big company or whatever, you know? Very true, very true. Thank you so much, Christian. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Hello, friends. If you enjoyed this episode, please make sure to subscribe and share it with someone. I would love to hear your feedback and suggestions as to what guests you would like to see in the show next. See you next week.